Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. We are in Munich at DLD Circular, an event uh, focusing on what we now call the circular economy, an economy in crisis because of environmental warming, global warming, and we know all about that from the hottest summer of record on t in 2023. Uh, I actually did a public event with my guest on the show, Martin Pushner. He's a professor at Harvard University and an expert on the telling of stories. And at DLD this year, he and I talked about how to tell the story of our circular economy. Uh, Martin, is that a struggle? Do stories tend to be linear rather than circular? Stories tend to be linear. I mean, everyone describes stories as something that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so that's a trajectory that is something that starts one place and ends up in another place usually you know linear or by a circuitous path but going in one direction and one of the takeaway points uh, points of the the whole day today at dld is that people are trying to create a circular economy and so what kind of underlying story about human society and its relationship to nature are we talking about here and uh it's been interesting that people used all kinds of circular words like regenerative or re recycling or refilling or uh, returning uh, something that you have taken from nature. And so the, the task is really to take a step back and think about what kind of storytelling would come from that or what kind of storytelling could undergird this very new kind of uh, attitude towards the economy. So that's the, the challenge I think we face. Martin, as you say, many of the speakers at DLD wanted to return to a more regenerative uh, kind of economy and telling stories about that regeneration and their critique was on a more exploitative economy. One of the, the bad words of the day uh, if circular was good, was linear. The linear economy was seen by many speakers as exploitative. Is that also true of stories? I know that you're in some ways quite critical of stories that depend on a, a rather, shall we say, vulgar linearity. Linear stories can be very problematic and they were the boogeyman today. Um, I would at extra and this is another term that some people have used extractive economy stories about extractive uh, economies uh, the view of nature where you see nature as a resource and then you take something and you don't return anything and that's sort of a one directional linear if you will but one directional and extractive kind of attitude and what i've been struck by studying the deep history of storytelling is just how old those stories of extractive of extraction of using nature as a resource and then taking it out uh, really are uh, going back to some of the earliest written stories in world history uh, that we can find in the epic of gilgamesh for example 
which is a story about the first cities that are being built. Uh, and so how do you build cities? You build them out of clay and you need timber. And so these first cities, five, six thousand years ago in Mesopotamia, they started to lead to widespread deforestation. And so one of the oldest stories register that and record that and describe how people had to go further and further afield to extract timber in order to build cities. So this linear or extractive or sort of one-sided uh, economy is not just a story of the last 50 years or the last 150 years with the beginning of industrialization, but it's almost as old as human urban civilization itself. And that just shows sort of what we are up against. We are up against a very long history that's very deeply baked into our different civilizations. As a professor of comparative literature and a, a theorist of storytelling margin as well, someone's very interested in the environment, it seems to me you're trying to wean us off the narrative of the apocalypse. Is that fair? Yeah, the, you know, the, the story of the apocalypse can seem attractive in today's environment. You know, we see burning uh, forests, burning cities, flooded cities. I mean, these all trigger our sort of disaster stories that we have accumulated over thousands of years. And they can seem effective because they scare people or, you know, if you think that the problem is complacency, um, they can shake people out of complacency. But we've also, I think, arrived at a moment where we see that those stories no longer, they're sort of diminishing returns, in part because people who hear about the disaster when there are only these sort of intermittent disasters, they feel like, well, life goes on, so these stories were wrong. Disaster stories can also breed kind of inaction. Uh, they suggest a false sense of certainty about the future. So I think we need to wean ourselves of those disaster narratives and replace them with other narratives, stories about human interventions, maybe small scales, maybe community, uh, com cumulative uh, interventions. And I think at DLD there, we've seen many little examples uh, of that. Stories of collective action, uh, because it's clear that climate change is incredibly complex and multifaceted uh, problem that it needs many forms of expertise and many uh, forms of action. So very collective uh, uh, problem. And so what one thing we need is stories of collective action. Uh, and, and those are the kinds of stories I think we need to tell uh, as we abandon or rewrite the old disaster narratives. Martin, I know you're interested in the idea or the ideal of agency and of course in DLD today there were many entrepreneurs and technologists uh, manifesting their own agency in terms of addressing the various pieces of the climate crisis, the climate puzzle. I understand that the telling of stories manifests a kind of agency, but is there also agency to listening to stories? You know, that's a very interesting point that what matters as much as listening to stories or reading stories or interpreting stories, because that's what we always do when we're confronted with a story. We, we process it, we interpret it, we make, make it our own, we try to make meaning out of it. and. It's been striking if you study the history of 
reception of some of the great stories, you see how it changes and how each generation reads these old stories in a new light. And that's what we are doing today. For example, when we read an old story of an extractive economy, we notice it and said, aha, this is, this is actually something that we should change. So that's a very sort of active engagement with stories. So I think you're right. Uh, how listening to stories in the right way, uh, making sense of stories, uh, reinterpreting stories and retelling stories, all of that uh, is part of what it means to live in a kind of world, as we do, that is suffused with stories, but there that everyone who hears them or interacts with them uh, does so in a kind of an active uh, process. So I think it's you're so right. It's important not to think of uh, stories as being told by one person and then everyone sort of just listening to them in a kind of passive way. Martin, you teach comparative literature at Harvard. You grew up in Germany. You're uh, well versed in German critical literary theory. The old Frankfurt School seems to me suggested that Hollywood, a popular telling of stories, was in itself extractive. Of course, the Frankfurt men, they tended to be men, were also very influenced by Marx's critique of capitalism. Is there such a thing, in your view, as an extractive story? And can we, could we argue that commercial networks like Hollywood or the publishing industry are in the business of extractive stories? Yeah, you know, people use that term extractive storytelling, for example, in the way in which Disney uses 19th century fairy tales and then sort of retells them, usually defangs them because the original fairy tales are much harsher, much more brutal. And so they were sort of sanitized and, and repackaged. And you could say, yes, that these are commercial enterprises that, that use folk tales uh, and make money out of them. But I have to say that I'm also skeptical of that sort of Frankfurt School uh, complete critique of popular storytelling. There's something very elitist about it. Uh, and I think that even though I'm also critical of certain Hollywood disaster stories and the predilection of Hollywood to, to tell them, uh, I don't think that uh, we need to be quite as uh, you know, critical of popular storytelling, especially since we're living at this moment because of technological change, where there are many more stories that are being told. And uh, I've been, for example, very interested in fan fiction, the way, and that's another way in which sort of active listening or active interaction with stories, where you have people who interact with very popular stories that are, you know, financed by Hollywood or other, you know, big capitalist enterprises. But then people tell their own stories out of them. They make them their own. So I think the kind of elitism I see in the Frankfurt School uh, is something that I'm personally quite skeptical of. And of course, Martin, you teach at Harvard, so you've never experienced any kind of elitism. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I take your point. Uh, uh, but, you know, I think that may be part of it because I do feel like if you're sort of in, in the all many of us are in these kinds of bubbles uh, that you become sort of impatient with these kinds of bubbles. It's one reason why I do a lot of online education, by the way, because I feel like I reach 
people and their incredible hurdles, of course, to get into places like Harvard. And that's another big frustration. And so there are lots of problems with online education, but it, it's one way of reaching many more people. And so I do think that people at elite institutions or, or living in, in bubbles need to try to reach out uh, and also learn and listen. Uh, and I'm trying to do that as best as I can. Speaking of patience, some people are impatient with stories. They want endings. They don't want never-ending stories. We even have theorists like Fukuyama, who was on the show last year, who invented the term, the end of history. Uh, I'm sure someone's written a book about the end of stories. But of course, the story of the environment, even in the best case scenario, never ends. We had a show a couple of weeks ago uh, about a book called uh, Red Cobalt, about the way in which one of the consequences of our dependence on batteries and electronic recharging has created a new slave economy in the Congo. So Martin, how do we tell stories about never-ending stories? You're an educator. How do we educate everyone about the environment, suggesting that there is no ending, that there is no happy final moment when the earth is saved. That's simply uh, children's fiction or perhaps bad adult fiction. Yeah, the, the urge or the yearning for endings is strong and both the happy ending that sort of solves all problems once and for all, but also the disaster ending. I mean, both of these, I think, respond to a kind of, to the difficulty and uncertainty of an of an open ending. Uh, one uh, very influential uh, storytelling form that I've been interested in is actually story collections, where you don't have sort of just one story, but you have many stories and a collection of stories. And yes, sometimes you have a kind of framing, but often the ending is open. And so you just keep telling stories and often they're sort of variations of the same theme. The Thousand and One Nights is a, a fame, the most famous story collection, but there, there are many more. So it, it's interesting that there are models for storytelling that don't presume that there's sort of one grand finale. And in my mind, I've been going back to these story collections and thinking there's something we can learn. Also because there are many storytellers at work, it's not just one person telling the story. So story collections and open-ended storytelling, I think there's a, a connection here uh, that, that, that we can learn from. Of course, over the last 50 or 100 years, and then you don't need me to tell you this as a as a professor of, of, of literature, uh, we've focused on allowing or empowering people who haven't traditionally been able to tell their own stories, to tell their stories, whether they're African Americans, ex-slaves, women, uh, and this seems to preoccupy much of the academic community. I wonder in the future, Martin, whether you could conceive of a world in which other species begin to tell stories too. We've done a number of shows on thinking about other species. In fact, with one, uh, uh, one academic who suggests that we're now on the brink of technology that will allow us to communicate with other species. Do you think that's the next, so to speak, chapter in our telling stories in this circular economy of adding non-human voices? Very interesting to think about non-human 
storytelling. Now, I would say that actually the history of literature is full of animal stories, of speaking animals, of animal fables, of different ways in which humans have imagined the perspective of animals or even objects of things. There are so-called thing narratives. So in some sense, I mean, that's part of the imaginative human power. Now, all of these stories, of course, told by humans, but it's an interesting an important exercise to imagine the perspectives of non-human actors, especially today where there's a lot of interest in the thinking about rights of uh, non-humans, the rights of the, huma uh, of the environment, of particular ecosystems, of animals. Um, and there's a long history of that. You know, you could say that, for example, children, yeah, infants don't tell their own stories. So we have had to try to imagine what the world looks like from their perspective. And there are great examples of that. So the, it's part of the imagination, the expanding imagination of perspectives and therefore of rights and therefore of stories. So I don't quite know what it would mean for, you know, a tree or an animal to tell its own story, but I can imagine what it might look like, and there are some interesting attempts today. Richard Powers' The Overstory, I think, is an interesting recent example of trying to think about how trees communicate with one another, uh, how scientists are trying to track that down, and what this kind of expanded view of our interconnected world uh, would look like. It's interesting you bring up Richard Powers. He seems to suggest that autistic children tell more accurate stories, perhaps, than, than adults. Uh, is this a feature, do you think, of uh, our new, shall we say, circular economy in which we're trying to get beyond extractive economics and extractive storytelling? Well, that's an interesting point uh, about uh, Autistic uh, characters in stories, and Richard Powers, you're right, the overstory is, a, is an example of that. Perhaps there's a sense that, you know, eight abled uh, people, uh, successful storytellers, there's something self serving uh, about the stories we tell, that we like to make ourselves feel good, we like to see the world in a certain way, we experience the, the, way, the world in a certain way, and perhaps thinking of telling stories from a perspective of people with disability as well as of other people, other species who cannot quite have access to storytelling uh, the way uh, able bodies can, um, is maybe part of that expansion and of bracketing our own self-interest that I think asserts itself almost automatically when we tell stories. So uh, I, I agree. I, th I think that's an interesting thought. What should stories do, um, uh, Martin? Should they scare us? Should they inspire us? Should they, should they make us? Should they be calls to action, or are there no rules? Should they put us to sleep? <laughs> That's true. That's often our first experience of stories in in in, in childhood. Exactly. Stories that put us to uh, sleep. I know as a parent, nothing gives you more pleasure than sending your own child to sleep with a story. It's true. The best yeah. stories are the ones where the, the infant conks up. 
But then, of course, these stories doesn't mean that we forget these stories. These stories linger, uh, and especially you know, there's the oh, other feeling sometimes. Right, it's true. And then also, children like to hear the same story over and over again. Yeah. The kind of attachment, and if you depart from it, if you change it, they can get very upset. Uh, so there is something soothing, perhaps, about hearing the same story and exactly the same wording over and over again. Perhaps this fetish we have these days with the circular economy, circular economics, circular culture, then, is a collective return to childhood. Uh, that, that's very interesting. Uh, and certainly when you think about storytelling, that childhood scene of being put to sleep by, by a story, and that that happens as a ritual every night over and over again, is one that bears thinking about. Well, Martin, I don't want to put any of our viewers or listeners to sleep, so we have to end. Uh, although, if anyone's putting anyone to sleep, it's me, not you. What about machines? We're on the verge of this AI age, re regenerative technology. Uh, well, not regenerative, whoops, that was a real Freudian error. Ge generative AI. Uh, I'm sure we will get regenerative AI too. <laughs> uh, can we trust machines, Martin, with stories? Or do we need to educate them? in storytelling? Do we need to educate machines in, in telling circular rather than extractive stories? Mm. Uh, circular rather than linear? Yeah. I mean, the first thing to say maybe about that is that we have been educating machines. I mean, we humans have produced the stories that we that get fed into the generative uh, AI systems and that in some sense they are just echoing back or mirroring back what what we have done with predictive algorithms so in that sense it's been sort of a a, a collaborative process between machines and technology from the beginning uh, it's astonishing what they can do with storytelling and there's no doubt that they're already being used uh, but this is what i would say first that we remember that we are the actual originators of these stories that we feed into them. And then also think about what kinds of corpora, what kinds of stories have been fed into these machines and that we cannot rely on them to come up with new ones. Uh, because originality, creativity, uh, I think remains the province of humans. Uh, machines are very good at other things. Uh, at recombining uh, uh, and extracting from huge data sets. So that, those are impressive uh, uh, features that I no doubt will, if we use it right, help us in our storytelling efforts. But I think it will not, we cannot rely on machines to do that difficult work of thinking about what kinds of stories we need and then coming up with those new stories. That's something we have to do ourselves. One thing we've done very well ourselves, Martin, is the telling of both utopian and dystopian stories. I mean, the great literature in the world is either utopian or dystopian, or perhaps a mix of the two. Is the ultimate dystopia one where stories disappear? Could you imagine a world where there no longer are stories? I actually can't remember a world, I can't imagine a world without stories. I think we just automatically concoct meaning out of events. We put things into, se into sequences. We try to project cause and effect. Now, sometimes that's a problem. Sometimes I think we, we are much too quick to, to latch onto a particular story or to take 
facts or fragments and move them together and bind them together into a kind of story story much too quickly so sometimes i think we need to pause and think and gather more evidence and think about what kind of story is really going on but the flip side of this is that i i can i think it's really very very deeply wired into our brains to make meaning and that's basically what stories do so I don't think there will be ever, uh, uh, you know, uh, as long as they're humans, I think there will be stories, but that's not necessarily a heartening thing. Stories, just stories, that, that's neither good nor bad. That's kind of neutral. It's human. The, ma the question is what kind of stories there are. And that's something that demands our sort of collective deliberation and action.